गुड मॉर्निंग और आफ्टरनून और इवनिंग इट डजेंट मैटर से इट विथ मी टाइम इज इेलिवेंट वेलकम टू द फिफ्थ एपिसोड ऑफ यू कैन चेक आउट एनी टाइम यू लाइक बट यू कैन नेवर लीव वेर वी डिस्कस द सार्टोरियल चॉइसिस ऑफ टूडेज पॉलिटिशियंस टूडेज एपिसोड इज ऑन द वन टाइम मोदी वोर अवेस्टी किडिंग एज ऑलवेज वी डिस्कसिंग एस्केपिज्म एंड क्राइंग टूगेदर और सेपरेटली For years now, Bhishma's story, his selfless sacrifices, and his nobility have bugged me for some reason. Perhaps it's because he had a very oh poor me air about him, but that could just be malicious thinking on my part. So today we're thinking about him and his apparent lack of choices in his fate. Also, this story is interesting because of Vyasa's self-insert character. Naturally his character gets to have sex with three different women classic male author anyway the story is titled the birth of vichitra virya's children let's get to it vichitra virya died before he could father any children Satyavati's dream of being the mother of kings was shattered. Then she went to Bhishma and told him to make her widowed daughters-in-law pregnant. By the law of Niyog, prescribed in the books of dharma, any child they bear belongs to their deceased husband. I request you to do what my sons could not do. That may be the law, mother, said Bhishma, but I will not break my vow of celibacy even for you, the one for whose pleasure this vow was taken. A desperate Satyavati then sent for her first son, Krishna Dwepayan, who lived with his father Parasar. By then, everyone referred to him as Vyas, the compiler, because he had successfully organized the Veda into four books. Make the two wives of my son pregnant, she said. I will, said Vyas, if so is your wish. But give me a year to prepare myself. For fourteen years, I have lived in the forest as an ascetic. My hair is matted and my skin coarse. my gaunt features will scare the two women but satyavati was impatient go now as you are they will welcome you and i cannot wait not wanting to disobey his mother vyas went first to ambika she was so disgusted by his looks that she shut her eyes when he touched her the child that vyas conceived in her womb was therefore born blind he was named dhritarashtra next vyas went to ambalika She grew pale on seeing Vyas. The child thus conceived in her womb would be a pale weakling called Pandu. Go to Ambika again. This time she won't shut her eyes," said Satyavati, said Satyavati, disappointed by the birth of imperfect grandsons. Vyas did as he was told, but on the bed lay not Ambika, but her maid, who made love to him fearlessly. The child she conceived would be healthy and wise. He would be named Vidur. Though fit to be king, he would never be allowed to wear the crown as he was born of a maid. Vidur was none other than Yama, the god of death, living out a curse. This is how it happened. Once, a group of thieves took refuge in the in the hermitage of sage Mandavya, who was at that time lost in meditation, totally unaware of their presence. When they were discovered by the king's guards, Mandavya was accused of aiding them and as punishment was tortured and impaled. When he appeared before Yama, ruler of the dead, he demanded explanation for his suffering, for he had no hurt no living creature in his life. Yes, you have. 
When you were a child, you took delight in impaling tiny insects on a straw, said Yama. Your suffering was repayment for the karmic debt incurred then. Mandavya protested that being punished for crimes committed in childhood, when one is innocent, was not fair. That is the law of karma, replied a dispassionate Yama. A furious Mandavya then cursed Yama that he would take birth as a man and suffer the fate of never being a king, despite having all the qualities of a perfect ruler. And so was born Vidur. Dhritarashtra, Pandu and Vidur were raised by Bhishma, by Bhishma as if they were his own sons. The irony of the situation was evident to all. Bhishma, who had sworn never to beget a family of his own, was entrapped by the family of his father, which included a stepmother, two sisters-in-law, their maid and three nephews. Bhishma, or is he really that poor? Let's find out. Why do bad things happen to good people? We constantly ask ourselves. The answer, according to most mythological stories, is fate and karma. Either someone has been fated to achieve something or be someone, so everything in their life must lead up to this moment, or the person has committed mistakes or has sinned in their past lives, so this moment is karmic retribution for all of it. Bhishma, the reincarnated Vasu, and Vidur, the reincarnation of Yama, are prime examples of this. Both are immortal beings who must live out their curses in their mortal flesh. The mortal versions of them do not remember they are immortal creatures. All they know is the present suffering. But it is always implied, or outright told to them, that the reasoning behind their lot in life is something beyond their comprehension. They have no control over fate or karma and must be content with what they are given. In a way then, knowing that they are fated to live their lives this way helps ease the moments of suffering because if something is beyond their control, there's no point in fighting it, right? This too is a form of escapism, blaming all one's problems or citing all one's blessings on some unnamed external source. Once people are no longer responsible for their actions in the world, life becomes easier to bear. In Bhishma's case, he inflicts the terrible oath of not fathering children upon himself. But it is explained beforehand that he is fated to live a terrible life, so this is not surprising. Vidur's curse is being born to a maid rather than a queen. And so though he is fit to rule, he can never be declared a ruler. But that is the exact curse that is that was inflicted on him as Yama, so it makes sense. In both cases, there is a sense of never attaining something. The curses keep them away from fulfilment or what is considered fulfillment, and so both are considered to live half-lives. But they are aware, or at least those around them are aware, of why their lives are like this. So there is a source they can blame for their misfortunes, if they so wish to. Nothing they do is their fault, and can all be explained by the curse. Bhishma kidnaps Amba, Ambika and Ambalika from their Swayamvar, and when Amba cites this as a logical reason behind him marrying her, he says he cannot because of the curse. Even though he was the cause of her life being ruined, he is able to easily step away from the blame and cite karma as the reason behind his actions. He never has to carry the weight of his actions as the presumption is that all these actions have been preconceived, 
Nothing he does in the present matters as it has all been accounted for in the past or will be accounted for in the future perhaps as another incarnation the curse allows him to escape from his worries and place the blame on on invisible forces vidur is more passive in the face of his fate perhaps it is because his curse is more clearly laid out bhishma has been cursed but it is never implied why what exactly the curse is with vidur it is clear he can never be a king So none of his actions are even in the way of being king. He lives his life as an uncle and advisor to kings and does not attempt to challenge or change his fate in any way. This passivity seems to stem as a direct result from clarity. Clarity regard, regarding the curse leads to an ability to accept it more fully. Fate is a common theme in most mythologies and modern fantasies. King Arthur, the once and future king, was fated to be born and is fated to return to the world when it needs him most. Jesus Christ arguably was also fated to die and be born again and Moses was fated to be the savior of the world most mythologies cannot operate without some elements of fate the sense that things were preordained and destined and as human beings we are just carrying out the words of a higher power this is why no one can truly dodge or escape their fate good or bad the maximum they can do is postpone the inevitable fate is Unsurprisingly, a common theme with fantasy and fictional characters as well. In the last episode, we spoke about the chosen one trope, which is similar but is more specific in terms of what the fated characters are expected to do. The chosen ones are usually the saviors or destroyers of the world. This episode speaks more about the, about fate and how it affects more regular lives and characters. For example, Luke, Anakin Skywalker's son. was not the chosen one but it was his fate that led to the confrontation with his father and the restoration of balance to the force similarly aragorn from the lord of the rings was not the chosen one but he was fated to be king fate involves a more implicit sense of knowing the future than the more explicit way that it operates with the chosen ones a song of ice and fire relies heavily on fate as a subplot fate is often what drives the characters in one direction or the other it is almost like another character in the show itself and there are already so many so what's another one almost all the characters have had some contact with fate stannis baratheon was told he was the chosen one of rolor daenerys targaryen believes she will return to and reunite the seven kingdoms of westeros her brother viserys was told he will have a golden crown jon snow is touted to be the prince that was promised and cersei lannister is warned that she will have three golden head children who will all die before her and that she will be killed by the velonquer her own brother i feel like i mispronounced everything because they all have strangely complicated names for white people most of the central characters in the show are driven by fate how to fulfill their fate and how to avoid their fate are most of the reasons for intricate plot points and massive betrayals as per most prophecies there are clever twists towards that seemingly had ordinary meanings that led to prophecy fulfillment in ways other than the expected outcome viserys for example is told that he will have a golden crown he believes this means he will be king but instead it means he'll die because khal drogo pours melted gold onto his head there thereby crowning him it's important to know that drogo chose this method to kill him because of how hellbent viserys was on attaining his crown Viserys threatens Daenerys, his own sister, saying Drogo owes him a crown. Before killing him, Drogo says in Dothraki, and translated by Danny, that he shall have a golden crown that men shall tremble to behold. He is then taken captain by Drogo's blood riders, 
while he shouts you cannot touch me i am the dragon i want my crown viserys dies screaming burnt by the melted gold after which danny pronounces he was no dragon fire cannot kill a dragon perhaps a way of foreshadowing her own relationship with fire and dragons it's interesting how danny and drogo use his quest for the crown as a justification for killing him according to them they are just aiding in prophecy fulfillment so there is no sense of re- responsibility or repercussions for their actions it is easy to take action and escape actively making choices if everything has been foretold then the blame here does not lie with the individuals who killed him but rather with whatever god decreed this fate Viserys in his quest to fulfill his fate managed to do it to the letter even though meaning and meaning making seem to take on two completely different meanings when fate and world play world play come into contact with each other while there may or may not have been some inherent meaning to the idea of Viserys being crowned by gold by attempting to make meaning out of it he managed to completely dodge his own interpretation of what his fate was his quest for meaning a singular meaning to the words behind his fate ultimately led to his demise singularity ties in with this idea of fate and escapism as the whole idea of fate and the way it plays tricks on those involved are the multiplicities that come up any time someone attempts to predict their fate this is somewhat similar to the way indian hindus are currently justifying their behavior with indian muslims i know i keep talking about this but that's because it's just all around us these days They take their mistreat- mistreatment in the past at the hands of Afghan and Mughal invaders as a reason to punish Muslims currently residing in India. It's not an open theory. Much like fate and prophesying, a lot of this reasoning remains veiled behind feeble justifications and even scientific quote-unquote scientific explanations. Individual Hindus cannot be to blame if their gods have decreed a certain treatment of Muslims for past or present sins. by choosing to blame fate and religion for their actions hindus are indulging in the escapism that is afforded by prophecy and by somebody else making decisions for them religious people are considered dangerous not because it is dangerous to believe in a god but because they are quick to find seemingly logical religious solutions for pro- for problems that they are faced with like these characters in a song of ice and fire people turn to fate and a higher power to justify their own version of events Viserys could have been could have been supposed to be crowned with an actual gold crown but by Drogo inter- interpreting words that already existed in his own way he chose to indulge in the escapism that fate allows none of their fates are so eerily foretold as a Cersei's though hers too was seemingly clear cut and yet it is riddled with mysteries her fate comes in the form of a prophecy from Maggie the frog a witch who can see the future she goes to this woman as a young girl eager to find out her future before she is even betrothed to robert even before robert's rebellion her prophecy in the form of a set of questions and answers looks like this when will i wed the prince never you will wed the king i will be queen though i queen you shall be until there comes another younger and more beautiful to cast you down and take all that you hold dear Will the king and I have children? Oh, I six and ten for him and three for you. Gold shall be their crowns and gold their shrouds. And when your tears have drowned, drowned you, the Valonquar shall wrap his hands about your pale white throat and choke the life from you. This is the end of Maggie's very eerie prophecy, or perhaps a curse. 
It's clear she is predicting a miserable life for Cersei. And yet, rather than allowing these predictions to stem her ambitions, Cersei becomes even more ambitious. She knows she will have three children and will not rest till they are crowned kings and queens. Yet it is this very ambition and her attempts to avoid the prophecy that leads to her downfall and the deaths of all three children. Perhaps if she had been content living a life of relative ignominy, then the prophecy might not have come true. At least that is the sense one gets when this prophecy is finally revealed midway through the series, once her children have already died. Or perhaps their deaths were inevitable, and Cersei, rather than attempting to avoid them, chooses to face the prophecy head-on and make the most of it. Cersei was responsible for her own downfall then, by embracing the prophecy. Perhaps by giving in to fate, by treating it as a sweet escape from her own problems, she did more harm than good. But it is hard to look at Cersei as someone who has given up though. Hers is the nature that fights, that is ruthless. It's unlikely for someone like her to have given in to fate. Does she know something the rest of us don't then? That inevitability is not as inevitable as it appears? That perhaps there is a way of escaping escapism itself? A series of unfortunate events was made into a Netflix series recently. One of the finale songs written for this show contains the lines, There's no happy endings, not here and not now. This tale is all sorrow and woe. I would sing it, but I sing terribly, so nobody wants to hear that. The Baudelaire orphans have been tossed time and time again to the vagaries of fate. There is no active prophecy for them, but there is an omniscient narrator who is convinced things will end badly. They are told this at every turn they make and every path they take. There's no way for their story to end happily. And yet, they're able to make the, they make the most out of what seems like a terrible fate. They leave the island whole and together and sail off into what is presumably a happy life. Here, fate, escapism has been escaped. They manage this because of the way they were always able to see the present possibilities of multiplicity that arose in front of them. Every time there was an insurmountable obstacle, there was always a way around that presented itself if only one were to look. There is a sense then of multiplicity, as always, being the answer to the escapist nature of fate. Choice is key here, I believe. Even the illusion of choice allows one to consider the possibility of avoiding fate. Choices can only exist if one is to consider that there is always more than one way of looking at problems or even solutions. There is, in fiction and in real life, something unavoidable in the nature of fate. Some Indian Hindus are referring to this period we are in as the Kaliyug. The Kaliyug is the last of the four stages or yugs of the earth, and the current Covid crisis, coupled with the environmental one, has led many to believe that this is it, the world is ending. There is a sense of inevitability about it. If we are fated to die, then there is no reason to attempt to pause or stop the slow roll of death. It might as well happen as effortlessly and painlessly as possible. Except, even this, the idea of leaving, escaping effortlessly is a fantasy. Even Dronacharya suffered when he died, because he died thinking his beloved son Ashwatthama was dead. Queen Padme suffered while dying, even though her death at the hands of her beloved could be seen as fated. Treating fate as an inevitable escape seems to only lead to more pain and suffering. Perhaps Cersei's life would have been easier if she gave in to her fate. But there is a sense that her struggle against fate is what made her who she is. Cersei, the only one who questioned escapism, was doomed to die embracing it. But the Baudelaire often survived. 
fate then truly mysterious and vague leaves too much room to interpretation trying to find one singular answer one way to understand one's fate is clearly not the answer but i mean i can't tell you what is because there are so many of them joining me today and helping me think through all the answers if there even is an answer oh shit we forgot about the question though uh well maybe we'll deal with that in the next episode until next time space rangers